We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Urban Shocker, Silent Hero of Baseball's Golden Age, the publisher, University of Nebraska Press, the author, Steve Steinberg. Please welcome home Steve Steinberg to the clubhouse. Thanks Good to for, be back. Yeah, thank third you for coming time. back. Your third time, exactly. And yet, for those of you mainly listening to the podcast, uh, just very quickly, a mini bio. Steve is a baseball historian and co-author with Lyle Spatz of, uh, and these were the two books that Steve was here for, The Colonel and Hug, The Partnership That Transformed the New York Yankees, and 1921, The Yankees, The Giants, and the Battle for Baseball Supremacy in New York. Uh, both terrific books, as is the third one. Thanks. So thanks okay. so much for, okay. for coming back. Thank you. And just to get us going, like we usually will start, if you could just let us know how this particular book project came about. Well, this was really the first book I ever started working on when I got into baseball history and writing back in 98, 99. And I actually have a blog piece that's on the University of Nebraska website. They put it up in March. When my younger son was about 10 years old in the late 90s, we were going to... Uh, different card shows and card stores. And I all of a sudden saw this card on the top of a box and it said Urban Shocker. And I thought it was like there was a shooting at a ball game or something like that. And I was surprised I never heard of the guy. And then I flipped the back of the card and I saw he was 18 and six on arguably the greatest team of all time, the 27 Yankees. And he was dead a year later. So that really had me hooked. And I'd never heard of him and uh, that's how I got into it. And I've been sort of nurturing the project for many years, written other stuff, published a lot of other stuff, and finally it was time. And uh, we'll get into the heart of the book, but I have a couple of questions sure. uh, as a prelude. Uh, the first is I know you did a lot of research with uh, microfilm, uh, but what kind of research were you able to do with any relatives of Shockers? You know, uh, I, I did connect with relatives, and there's some photographs that they provided, and, and pretty typically, when I do uh, research, the relatives may give you some insight to the man, but almost invariably, the relatives want to know more from me than, you know, they don't remember him. I mean, this is, you know, he's been dead uh, over 90 years now. So the photographs are a pretty neat thing. And Shocker, unique in that he had two families. He was one of nine children. And then, uh, so his blood relative, you would say. And then he, when he married his second wife, he legally adopted her son from a prior marriage. And those two streams of the families for decades have not really connected. And through uh, you know my connecting with both of them, I'm not sure how far it's gone. They may have reconnected. Is that where a lot of, in the book, there's a lot of different spellings of shocker in, uh, over time. Not, not of urban shocker, right. but of the, of the families. Is, that, is that part of it? Well, you know, so often, and many of the people here, your families came from somewhere maybe in Europe, and there is no necessarily right or wrong spelling. In Shocker's case, uh, a lot of the family spelled it S-H-O-C-K-C-O-R, where there was Pennsylvania Dutch, some background there. Uh, and so many of the reporters kept on getting it wrong that finally at the end, I think he probably just said, let's call it Shocker. In the minor leagues in Ottawa, he was called Herb a lot, H-E-R-B, because Herb, you know, he'd hear somebody say Herb and it wasn't that common a name. Uh, you know, we do have Urban Meyer now, we had Urban Faber back then. 
but uh, names get simplified, and uh, that's how that happened, I think. And uh, for the people who have not seen the book yet, you're not going to know this, but there's about 30 chapters or so in the book, and, and not every chapter opens this way, but many of them open with uh, the words of Grantland Rice. Right. And if you could just explain well, you're the first you're the first person that asked me about that, and I, I, I was hoping, and I'd like to think that Grantland Rice, who was a fabulous sports writer known as the Dean of American Sports Writing, really the first half of the 20th century, wrote a lot of poetry. And a lot of the themes of his uh, poems were themes that tie in with the tragic story of Shocker's life, you know, the aging athlete, you know, uh, playing the game and, you know, the, the final battle. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, they're pretty special, the poems that are in there. So it's yeah, really they're, unique. They're beautiful. I mean, Vanderbilt University has, I think he, he's probably written about thousands and thousands of poems. He would write in the Herald Tribune and every day he would have a little, a little poem at the beginning of it. So. It's really wonderful. Okay, so now we can kind of we can get into it. So he's traded away and brought back by Miller Huggins. Uh, obviously, you wrote another book about Miller Huggins, right. so you, you're obviously quite an expert. Yeah, on well, Huggins took over as manager of the Yankee after the 1917 season, and without even seeing Shocker talking to Shocker, he got rid of him. And he was told at the time that Shocker was a troublemaker. And Shocker, like many ball players, was sort of on the edge. He went out drinking a lot. He was able to control, control it. Although, he, like I, I said, he, he it was a borderline situation. Ray Caldwell, who is an immensely talented pitcher for the Yankees, and I've written a bio from him that's on Sabres Bio Project, uh, was the guy that Shocker hung out with. And Ray Caldwell was legendary for his nighttime escapades. And the two of them during the 1917 season were fined for not making curfew. And Huggins never said who told him to get rid of the troublemaker, but uh, he's really the only guy of any significance that Miller Huggins got back. And uh, Huggins wanted to have uh, Shocker back because he was such an intense competitor and uh, you know, fought for winning, and he did it. And uh, he loved coming back to play for the Yankees, uh, Shocker. What was his relationship with uh, Huggins when he came back? I, I, I think, and again, a lot of this you have to you know, read some of it between the lines, but I think he was just so happy to come back. He called them my Yankees. He never wanted to leave. Had he not been traded, he, he won 20 games four times for the Browns from 1920 to 23. What's more incredible in the stories in the book is in those four seasons, he missed a month of the season each time. A couple to suspension and a couple to injury. He won 91 games in those four years, more than any pitcher in baseball. And he just felt like it was like coming home. Had he not been traded by the Yankees, they probably would have won five pennants in a row because they just missed in 1920 to the Indians and 1924 to the Senators. So it would have been a five spot there. But uh, he, he just was happy. He was an intense competitor. We have one story in the book where he punched Huggins in a game where uh, they, they got in an argument and a fight over an umpire's call. But Huggins wanted that, that kind of intensity, especially after the Yankees had just fallen short in 24. They got a little complacent, you know, perhaps. And you mentioned that he was suspended. Uh, what was he suspended for? Well, he had a, a number of suspensions, but the most famous one is that in the uh, September of 1923, he wanted to take his wife uh, on a road trip. And the team suspended him, and he uh, felt that it was an impingement on his liberty. He filed with Commissioner Landis for free agency, and he might very well have been uh, release because Landis had a very independent streak for the little guy 
And uh, the, the case was quietly solved before Landis had the ruling. And, and later on it came out that he wanted to take his wife on that road trip because she had cancer and they were going to see a specialist in Philadelphia. And uh, his wife died at a very young age in the early 1930s herself. Yeah, the, uh, the free agency, or the seeking free agency in effect, right. in 1923, it, it was eye-opening. Uh, I did not realize that that, uh, that that term even came about, you know, in, in effect. Yeah, I'm not sure if that term actually was uh, used. I had written an article and I called it that, but Landis, you know, was famous. Of course, he was overruled many times, you know, the John Rockefeller ruling. He had one case, I remember I came across, where uh, a guy, uh, a bank teller, embezzled money from the bank. And at the trial, Landis said, how much money did they pay you an hour? How much money did they pay you a day? And Landis got so upset that he said, oh, you know, they're, they're ripping you off. They're not paying you anything. You're innocent. Case closed. So Landis had this thing, and under the national agreement, any player could have the ultimate appeal to Landis. So basically, the Browns quietly settled the case, gave him the big raise, and uh, avoided avoided that. And so uh, one of his uh, pitches was a spitball uh, shocker. And he kind of uh, crosses over when it was legal, and then the pitch becomes illegal. If you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, a, a lot of people may know the lively ball era started in 1920. And that's when the spitball and other trick pitches were banned. And a lot of people may not realize that the spitball was only going to be the 17 pitchers that pitched the spitball were given a year's reprieve that they could learn another pitch, a curveball or whatever. Subsequently, baseball owners decided to grandfather those pitchers because uh, a lot of them, like in the 20 World Series, you had Burley Grimes and San Kovaleski, two of the superstars, and you know, so baseball decided not to ban it. Uh, so Shocker was one of the guys that continued with it. Interestingly enough, he, um, he actually threw the pitch very rarely. And what he actually was throwing a lot of times was his slow ball, which was arguably the best slow ball in the history of the game. He broke his finger when he came, his middle finger when he came into baseball as a catcher, and it left a permanent crook on his hand, and it just got that slow ball to uh, just do funny things as it approached the plate. But his slow ball was pretty amazing. We don't have film of it, so we don't know how slow was slow. There's a wonderful quote in there. I don't know if you remember that Roger Peckinpah quote. I'd love to read if I could find yeah. it quickly enough. Because Peckinpah, who was his, if we go to Peckinpah in the, uh, in the index, he's probably mentioned a couple of times. That's a good index, this book. Uh, Peckinpah was a uh, teammate of Shockers on the 16 and 17 Yankees, and then later uh, became a shortstop for the world champion uh, Senators and a manager after that. And it, it, was a, it would be a later probably a yeah. later one. I don't know how many entries are in there on... Uh, There's about seven. Oh, okay. You may not want to... Didn't flag it. I should remember the page. But, um, but again, many people thought he was throwing the spitter, which, and he loaded up all the time. In other words, he'd bring the ball to his mouth so he didn't know if the spitter was coming. And a lot of times he just rarely threw it. Burley Grimes, the last legal spitballer. Uh, here it is. This is uh, perhaps a little embellishment. This is what Roger Peckinbaugh said. In 1938, years after Shocker was dead, there never was a pitcher who could throw a slow one like Shocker. His slow ball never did look like it was going to get to the plate. He'd throw it 20 feet up in the air sometimes, and he'd make an awful sucker out of a hitter, especially when he had two strikes on him and two were out. 
Shocker throw that slow in in that high arc and then start walking to the dugout. Perfectly confident that the side was retired. By the time the ball came across the plate, Shocker be across the foul line headed for a drink of water. Now, there's probably a little embellishment in there. <laughs> and uh, in Shocker's later career, I think the ball did look like maybe like an Ephus pitch, but uh, it's pretty effective. Uh, well, part of this, uh, his slow ball, if you could talk a little bit about the matchups that he had with Babe Ruth, and then I have another question about Right, that. well, you know, one of the paradoxes is that most people, on the 27 Yankees, Shocker was not a very colorful guy. He was actually, you know, very quiet, very reticent, and we can talk a little later why. In the early 1920s, when he was in St. Louis, and he was exiled to St. Louis, which is like the westernmost city where you don't get much attention, he was on the Browns, uh, he, he was probably the most colorful, arrogant uh, ball player in the game, a lot of hubris. And he had famous matchups with, with Babe Ruth. And one of the more famous ones that Sporting News documents, in 1920, he struck Ruth out three times in the game. It was a doubleheader. Ruth struck out two more times in the second game and was so upset that he smashed his favorite bat after the doubleheader on the dugout steps. But when he came up at one of the at-bats, Shocker turned around and waved his three outfielders in. And they came in a few steps, as in, he threw a slow ball, and Ruth, you can imagine, was getting more and more upset. He turned around again, and he waved them in again, and they came in even more. And, uh, and he threw another slow ball, and Ruth was totally off balance, strike two. Then he wasted a fastball down and away, and then he waved uh, Jacobson, Williams, and uh, Tobin all the way to where they were on the edge of the infield grass, and he struck him out. I mean, can you imagine, I'd love to ask the question, what pitcher can you conceive of that would do that to Bryce Harper or Mike Trout today? Who has that kind of uh, chutzpah, I suppose? Can you think of anyone? No. No. Okay. <laughs> it's a different, it's all different. Different. Uh, and then when, when Shocker comes back to the Yankees, what is his relationship like with Babe Ruth as a teammate. Well, they, they, they were uh, friends. They actually played, uh, they were the foursome and bridge that there was, uh, that would play uh, on a regular basis. And uh, <coughs> I think <coughs> Shocker had success with Ruth, but Ruth had a lot of home runs off of him. So they were probably both happy that they're on the same team now. Right. And then <coughs> we're going to get to, uh, I'm going to open it up to, to the audience for questions, but I just have one qu question. I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, the two greatest players, I guess you could say arguably, but the two greatest players in Yankee history, the Yankees did not treat extremely well at the end of their careers, uh, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. Uh, how did they, so now you have, I realize he's not Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, which didn't end that well. Here you have a guy who was not doing well in a lot of ways. How did the Yankees treat him at the end? Well, Shocker uh, kept his illness uh, secret. And uh, we don't know exactly when he knew, but it sounds like right when he, around when he came back to the Yankees, he was diagnosed. Robert Hyland, the famous uh, doctor known as the Surgeon General of Baseball, uh, who was in St. Louis, was probably continued to be his doctor, probably was able to detect a heart murmur. And shocker, the last three years of his life could not sleep lying down. He had a heart valve problem. And uh, Miller Huggins, you know, obviously discovered it near the end and we do talk in this book as well as the Colonel and Hug that Huggins had the most difficult time of any player of releasing him when he did, of uh, doing it with Shocker. It was very difficult for him. 
And the difference is, in the case of Lou Gehrig, everybody remembers him because he accepted his fate uh, and he made a big speech. Shocker wasn't quite as famous as Gehrig, but he never accepted it. He just felt he's gonna go and beat this thing, this heart disease, and nowadays, if you have mitral valve failure, you go into the hospital and you're home for dinner. Maybe some people here have had a mitral valve replaced. Back then, it was a death sentence. And Bill Corum was a sports writer, and for some reason, he never told that story about meeting Shocker, which we talk about until 1956, until just before Corum died. And he told the story about meeting Shocker, and Shocker said, I'm going out to Denver, because people went to Denver where the air was good, but if you had a heart problem, Denver's the worst place to go the oxygen, and then Den uh, Shocker took up flying. So imagine you have a heart problem and you're flying in Denver. Not exactly uh, the best uh, prescription. <laughs> okay, so now we, uh, I want to turn it over. Who wants to uh, lead off? Joe? So one of the great unknown teams in history, the 1922 Browns, can you talk a little bit about that? Right, the 22 Browns were uh, an amazing team, and actually there's a picture here of Bob Quinn, who was their general manager, and Bob Quinn's granddaughter is married to Roland Heeman. It's a small world, and Roland provided the picture here. And I think there still is a Quinn, like the fourth or fifth generation in Major League Baseball now. And he put together this terrific outfield of uh, Jacobson, Tobin, and Williams, Kenny Williams, who led the league with home runs that year. And those five guys hit over 300, I think five years in a row. One year, Tobin missed it by uh, one point. He had 299. But the thing that most people don't realize is that the 22 Browns led the American League and earned run average also, which was uh, pretty amazing. And uh, they had a, a manager who was uh, quite unknown named Lee Fold, but he was a minor league catcher and a veteran minor league manager, and uh, he really uh, understood pitching, and he got that team. They were only one game short of, the, of winning the pennant, and you wonder what would have happened to St. Louis baseball. The, the Cardinals, most of the early 20th century, the Browns were better than the Cardinals. And had they won, you know, how would baseball have been different in, uh, in St. Louis? Would the Cardinals have left? You know, they, they were a great team that fell just short. In 44, they won, but probably the 22 team was a much better team than the 44 team, I would think. Well, I think that that is so exaggerated. I always got the, the feeling, at least early in Shocker's career, that the slow ball was like a change of pace. So uh, there's a wonderful Burley Grimes story that one season Grimes was being hammered when he threw the spitball and he couldn't figure out how he was tipping his pitches. And, they, and finally somebody told him that he'd always bring the ball to his mouth. When he would really spit, the bill of his hat would wiggle a little bit. <laughs> when he would just pretend to spit, the bill of the hat wouldn't wiggle. So I think you know the slow balls, uh, you know, a change, change of pace. Now they call it a changeup. So he, it was uh, at the end of his career, he was so weak physically. As one sports writer said, it's almost like what he had on his arm went to his brain, and he was able to just know. Shocker used to buy newspapers from every city uh, every day, and he'd try to study it long before computers to see who was hot, who was not, what pitcher. I guess you couldn't do that with over 30 teams in baseball, with seven other teams, you know, and, and uh, relatively fixed rosters, you know, he, he would study them. And, uh, and then you also mentioned that he, would, uh, he was a student of watching a hitter's uh, feet. 
Uh, was that Shocker? That was someone else in the book. I well, I mean, Shocker did. Uh, Shocker finally did get to the World Series in 1926, and here's an aging great pitcher. Unfortunately, he ran into another aging great pitcher named Grover Cleveland Alexander. Mm -hmm. And we go into the, or I go in, in the story here about uh, Shocker gave up a, uh, a home run to Billy Southworth. And, uh, and, and it's really a puzzle because Shocker was such a student of the feet and so forth. And he fed, he fed Southworth a ball that Southworth could kill. And keep in mind, right field was uh, the same short distance that it is today. And we have a quote there, I have a quote there, Miller Huggins is saying, gosh, it was just a pop fly ball that got caught in the, in, in the wind. And then I tuck another quote at the end from another Yankee manager, and it was Joe Torre talking about, or no, it was uh, Atlanta, Bobby Cox talking about the Chuck Knobloch home run. That also just was, and it was almost like they each were describing this 315-foot home run the same way. Boy, as to the second question, there are people smarter than me. I'm going to de default on it. It is amazing that these guys pitched as often as they did. Shocker in 1922 pitched 346 or 48 innings. He missed an entire month due to injury, and it's actually he he either tore a, a tendon or a ligament in his leg, and it was affecting his ability to to throw. He probably that season would have uh, eclipsed uh, Ed Walsh's. 20th century record. He did have some minor injuries uh, at different times. And uh, in terms of his mitral valve failure, it was said in those days that a lot of children had rheumatic fever, which I don't even know if it exists nowadays, does it? You don't? And one of the, one of the things about rheumatic fever is that years later when you're an adult, the scarring on that, that valve uh, uh, causes you know, mitral valve failure. So um, he, he had some occasional, but he was, he was a workhorse, and he demanded the ball when they would go into a four-game series against the Yankees. He wanted to pitch game one and game four and, uh, against the Yankees. And uh, he beat them pretty regularly. They called him the Yankee Jinx. And ironically, in 1922, they beat him quite a few times. It sort of evened out. He lost a lot of – his record was 24-17 and 17 that year. And he, he lost a lot of two-to-one – and, and he, missed, he missed a month of the season. He lost a lot of two-to-one games, including a heartbreaking one that really determined the pennant uh, to, to the Yankees. But I'd like to, if I could, just to comment on the paradox of how this guy, who is so colorful, and then goes to the 27 Yankees and becomes sort of like into the woodwork. And I, I had uh, the occasion to chat more than once with little Ray Kelly. And I don't know how many of you people remember, there's an iconic photograph of Babe Ruth sort of crouching, holding a bat, and a little kid next to him holding the bat. Ray Kelly, uh, Babe Ruth in the early 20s was driving home one day on Riverside Drive and he saw this guy playing baseball with his son. And uh, Ruth, hired, uh, Ruth brought uh, this little boy, little Ray Kelly in, and he became sort of the Yank Ruth's mascot. I don't think he traveled with the team the way Eddie Bennett did. And when I talked to Ray Kelly, who's since passed away, he said, you know, and he was a, a pretty young kid, even in 27, he said, you know, I could tell you anything about a lot of stuff about the 27 Yankees, but I can't really tell you much about Shocker. So I think two or three things happened. Number one, you know, he was just so content that he finally got back home. He was a more mature player, and he knew he was dying. 
and knowing that you're you're dying does change your personality and I think uh, and we've also seen a lot of examples where a very forceful personality on a team a weaker team gets traded to a more dominant team I think of like Bill Walton going to the Celtics and you know the team has so many strong personalities that that guy that dominated the Browns is sort of you know more in the background on the yeah, who, who can uh, take away uh, the babe so luster? And the retired English teacher, I'm just curious, you wrote this book by yourself and the other two books you wrote in conjunction with Wild Wild's Back. I'm just wondering if you compare the experience, how is it different? Well, it's real different. Lyle and I, and like I said, we're embarking on a third book right now. And uh, I, I think it's more challenging and more work to collaborate the end product is perhaps better. In the case of Shocker, I've been living with Shocker for 18 or 19 years, so I, I feel that I know him like the back of my hand. But uh, obviously, it's it's a longer process, and one of the things that Lyle and I have always prided ourselves in is it's very hard for you to know who wrote which chapter in our uh, collaborated books because somebody's got to write the first draft. But we, we do so many edits, and we send them back and forth, and then we send them to these colleagues of ours that are readers, they give us their input, and then we re-edit it back and forth. And then I send it to Gabriel Schechter, who's up in the Cooperstown area. He's the fact checker, and then he does it, so they go through countless edits. So it's a, it's a quality product, and like any partnership, uh, and, and ours has been good. I know a lot of people in publishing say, most people that write a book, they aren't even talking to their co-author <laughs> by the end of the first book. Yeah, 27 Yankees people we still Right. I mean, they had the top three ERA guys. Just like I talk about the twenty-two Browns, and then they had Will Seymour, who was a early uh, fireball, you know, a relief pitcher. But Hoyt Pennick and, and you know, and, and Shocker and Moore had you know were 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 terrific. And again, you know, Ruth and Garrett got the headlines, and actually Lazari and Coombs and Musil was a killer lineup, other than at catcher because Dickey was a year away. And, uh, and I actually wrote a feature article in the 2006 Yankees yearbook on this very, on the Yankee pitchers of the, 20, of the late 1920s. It was a dynamite, talented group. Two of them are in the Hall of Fame. And Bill James has written that he thinks the wrong two are in the Hall of Fame. Pennick and Hoyt. And he thinks Shocker and Shockey should be in there. They, Pennick and Hoyt won 60 more games, but they also lost 60 more games. They also were in, you know, Hoyt became a beloved broadcaster. Pennick was the GM of the Phillies and dropped dead at the winter meetings and was inducted a few months later. Uh, I think he basically built up the Wizkits, but he died before they uh, before that season. So, interesting talent, yeah. Do you think Shocker at all like suffered from what is known as Smokey Joe Wood syndrome, where he's great for such a condensed amount of time and due to either injury or, in Shockey's case, debilitating um, injury that ultimately led to his you mean a victim in terms of Hall of Fame voting? Yes. Well, you know, a part of course, you know, he was dead uh, long before the Hall even opened, and you know, he had ten solid years, much more longer than uh, than Joe Wood to some extent. You know, I uh, 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 Bill Dean recently asked me, and Bill Dean was a former senior uh, uh, analyst at the Hall of Fame, still lives in the area there. You know, I didn't really get into a discussion should Shocker be in the Hall of Fame or not because I just want to tell his story and let it be out there. 
and uh, but you know he's certainly better than some guys that are that uh, are that are in there. So. You know, Bob Shockey and Shocker were in the 27-28 season, were sort of dual. They were working with the rookies also. And uh, they, the teams back in the 20s might have had a coach or two, but oftentimes it was not necessarily a pitching coach. And it might be a veteran pitcher that's working, in, especially in spring training with the, uh, you know, with the pitchers, the young pitchers. Do we ever see a 24-17 Oh, what, did Wil what was Wilbur Wood's most decisions? <laughs> it, it was pretty close to that. Um, well, I mean, would you ever see somebody pitch that you know that, that many innings? And um, um, you know, it, it, it was a different uh, a different game from that standpoint back then. And uh, John McGraw sort of dabbled in relief pitchers, but then backed off on them. Uh, the Washington, you know, Senators of Purple Marbury, and then. Wilsey Moore also had an arm injury that made him throw that screwball. And Ty Cobb said during the 27 season when Moore was pitching that the guy's gonna ruin his arm, he'll never be able to pitch again. And basically after the 27 season, Wilsey Moore was done. I mean, he hung around, but his arm was, and that screwball just took so much uh, uh, out of you, so. Other things you're wondering about? Or well, I was gonna also say that uh, some of you may not know that Steve is a, he's an expert really in the 20s, the 1920s of baseball. So if there's any other questions about that, or I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll ask well, The one. teens in the 20s. The yeah, teens in the 20s. Yeah. So 100 years ago, basically, yeah. uh, almost. Uh, and the game is completely different now in many ways. It's very different now from when I was a kid, let alone 100 years ago. Just I want to get your thoughts as someone who, lo who loves baseball, obviously, and loves the history of it, and obviously still loves baseball. What are, what are your feelings of, of the current state of well, baseball? Well, one of the things, and I've been asked that before, and how the game is different, I actually see a lot of the similarities more than the differences, and that's one of the beauties of baseball, as opposed to, let's say, NFL football or, or whatever precursor of the NBA. The, the games were much quicker. If there was a two-hour ball game, that was considered interminably long. The longest game in baseball history, that 20, was a 26-inning game. I think in 1920, ran about three hours and a half. Now, one thing you have to realize <laughs> is that there were a lot fewer strikeouts. And, and I've actually been willing to, uh, wanting to look into this now, and I don't even know what database. Do we know, for example, the average pitch count? I never hear that talked about. What was in 2016, what was the average pitch count per nine innings? And I would be, be willing to hazard a guess that back in the 1920s it was dramatically different. There was no systematic tracking of pitch counts. But it, let's just say anecdotally it was 100 pitches, and let's say today it's 130. That right there, I don't know why that hasn't been mentioned more in the discussion. That's 30% more pitches. And obviously there's other delays, the advertisement, the guys adjusting their gloves or their hats or whatever. But uh, the game moved at a different pace. And uh, like I said, a two-hour game was considered really, really long. And the joke was that the wife of the house was getting very angry. The dinner was ready. The game started at 3.30 or whatever, and she's got dinner ready, and it's a two-hour game. It's just going on forever. Uh, so they, they, the other thing is, nowadays, you see a player hit a double, and he goes to the second base, and he's smiling and talking to the second baseman. I mean, in those days, it was war. 
I mean, you never would, uh, uh, of course, if, if you were on McGraw's team and you even said hi to the, uh, the, the infielder, uh, it, it was a rough and tumble game. And, you know, we talk now about the controversy of throwing at a batter. In those days, they threw at the head of a batter. And not in retaliation, but Carl Mays, whose pitch killed Ray Chapman, once said, I got a hold of an interview with him with, uh, or, or with Wade Hoyt. They were actually roommates on the 1919 Red Sox. He said, They're tr those hitters are trying to take away my bread and butter. I'm trying to make a living for my wife and kids. And if they're going to think they can get the inside of the plate, they are mistaken. And we have one wonderful uh, quote in here from Roy Stockton. Uh, I have where um, uh, Shocker in 22 was hammered. This is when he had the torn ligament and he didn't realize it. And uh, Mays was not the most polite guy and came up to the bat and was sneering at him. And Shocker threw to his head three times. And he put Mays down in the dirt three different times. And Stockton has a wonderful quote here, how the first time was maybe a coincidence, the second time was, I don't know what to call it, he said, by the third time it was a habit. And Mays took off with his bat for the pitcher's mound. And uh, the umpires uh, intervened and prevented that. It, it, it was a, a, a rough game. And uh, in those days, the relief pitcher, if you were a starting, the star pitcher, you had to really get knocked around to be taken out. And if you weren't the star pitcher and you were getting hit hard, they put the star pitcher into you know, favor or shocker. The stars of these teams were the leaders in retroactively. They didn't have saves back then. Well, is there anything specifically other you're sort of thinking about? Or no, I just, I mean, I, I was born in 1960, so let's say I started appreciating Good. the game to some degree at the end of the 60s, mainly 70s. To me, the game is completely different now than then. Okay. Uh, with relief pitching, uh, I was talking to a buddy about this the other day, and at first he laughed, and I said, I need somebody to explain this to me, why this analogy is not true. Uh, basically, a starting, I said starting pitching is almost, it's getting to the point where it's meaningless. It used to be everything, and it's almost meaningless. Basically, a starting pitcher today, the goal is to get six innings out of the guy. That's pretty much what they get. They, maybe a few guys go more, but most guys, they get six, and they think it's great, and then it's a parade of relief pitchers. Not a parade of Mariano Rivera's, it's a parade of a lot of stiffs in general, in my opinion. Uh, so basically, that turns over the last third of a game. You're taking your best stud out in many cases because you want to protect them and for other reasons. And the last third of a game is now being turned over to a lesser, a lesser quality. So my analogy was Henrik Lundqvist is the Rangers' best goaltender, if not the best player. He can't be as fresh in the third period as he is in the first two periods. It's impossible. Okay. That's the last third of the game. It's the exact analogy of if, you if somebody would say to the coach, or if the coach of the Rangers said, I'm going to take Lundqvist out because I'm going to put in a fresh guy for the last third of the game, huh. he'd get fired in two seconds. That is basically, if a manager does not do that in baseball, he would get fired for not doing that. Well, and I'd yeah. see that that is a completely different the game is completely different than it was in the 70s, 80s in that way. You know, looking at the 100-year picture, baseball is a struggle between the pitcher and the hitter. And when one of them gets too much of the upper hand, they tinker with it a little bit to give the other one. And, you know, maybe we're at that point now. The difference is obviously the relief pitcher is, I, I never really have thought about that. That's interesting. Uh, Pecorino yesterday got yanked. Of course, he gave up three, <laughs> three minutes, but three goals. But 
when they yank him, then the batter doesn't get a chance to see his stuff a third time around. I mean, the relationship between a, trying to score a hockey goal and the goalie is doing a defensive reaction, where you know the pitcher is initiating the action, and uh, and uh, and and they, they throw these very fast pitches, which is putting less balls in play, which is more pitches per game. And I'm still amazed that there isn't more bunting than there is. You know, 19, in, in uh, 1921, Lyle and I tell the story in game five of the World Series, they weren't really doing a shift on Ruth, but they were playing so far back at third base that he bunted down the third baseline. He was safe and he actually scored the winning run on a double. And he was almost thrown out of first base because he was laughing so hard <laughs> as he was running first base. I, you know, at some point, uh, you know, we're seeing it to some extent, uh, but we're not seeing it enough. And you know, with the shift, there, things do sort of come in balance. And uh, but th with all the arm problems, I mean, I don't think people were throwing that fast and that hard. And uh, and uh, a lot of injuries, obviously. But again, like I said, I'm not an expert on that part of it. But I have a question not about pitching, but about um, the 1920 White Sox last. Was there any even, I know there was suspicion in 1919, but going into 1920, as the 1920 season plays out, does Charles Comiskey have any idea of what transpired? Like, did he know that his first base was his third baseman? And you know, I, I'm on the Sabre uh, Black Sox 1919 committee. I think he did. Um, and actually, there's a lot of uh, evidence suggesting that they were throwing games in 1920. That now the the gamblers really you know had them in their hold and uh, you know when the Indians would lose maybe they would lose and um, so uh, you know I think he did obviously that uh, then he became a broken man because the team was basically you know it's nice to have clean socks in your drawer but if you don't have <laughs> enough socks you know you you can't do very much. I mean it's interesting when you look at stats real quick because they say. Um I can't remember if it was Buck Lieber or Happy Felch. I know Joe Jackson had a great series, and there was some controversy there. But I mean, I even find it hard to believe, not Happy Felch, but like Buck Lieber, because if you see his stats, it's not, he doesn't make it apparent, or he didn't make just like a throwing air like he threw a 10 feet over Chick Gandel's head on a ground ball. Well, I thought Buck Weaver wasn't part of the. Uh, yeah, I mean, he knew about it supposedly, yeah. and uh, and um, yeah, we don't have film from the game, you know. So you can you can. Uh, there have been people that have studied, you know, those games so intently, and obviously some people want Weaver and Ted Williams wanted Joe Jackson in the hall. You know, he campaigned for that before he died. Oh, go ahead. <coughs> Well, he was born Urban. Urban, he was. They were mistakenly called Herbie, Herb, because they they would hear somebody say Urban, they'd say Herb. But Shakur was the name. It's just like Jack Quinn, a pitcher that I'm working on now. John Pike is Quinn. He came from Eastern Europe, and his name was Podchkos. And uh, you know, what's the right spelling of it? There is no right spelling. I mean, they came to America. They said, "What's your name?" You know. I mean, my family, you know, probably had that also. Yes. Well, in 1926, there was a whole scandal about uh, Speaker and Cobb, 
And um, so they, they were, the American League president wanted a black ball then, but then Landis, who was the commissioner, who was in an ongoing power struggle with the president of the American League, let them come back. They came back to different teams. So, you know, bet, betting on games was just done during the dead ball era. And, and you know, we, we don't know, and we're probably never going to know the extent whether, you know, outcomes, you know, were affected. But finally, Landis said, you know, I can't keep on going back. He said, you know, nobody's going to do anything funny now that I'm commissioner. And he just didn't want to have somebody, you know, another story from 1915 or 1918 come up. So tried to wipe the slate clean. Yes? I have a question that I'm curious about the years. How do you do with the prowess of 1920s ball players and today? Uh, it seems the players are bigger and stronger today than they were. Oh, no question about no it. No question. Uh, would you say they're faster also? Probably, you know, again, again, we, we don't have the data. The reason I ask that question is, in 1920, I had some routine ground balls that shorts out the third, and it was thrown out at first, not by much problem. How come 90, uh, 90 years later, running the same 90 feet, if the guys are bigger, stronger, probably faster, there are more guys beating up third base, you know, grounds to third and short? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Ichiro had a share of them. What's that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is subjective, and I, you know, I just don't know. I'm not again. Some people really study this, like you say, exit velocity, and you know, and, and arm velocity. Um, not sure. I, I, I just am not sure how I'd answer that. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, if you travel back to the 20s, people say, "Do I go to games?" And I say. I go to games every night. They're usually in the 20s and they're in black and white. <laughs> but, uh, I'll go with you. Okay. Yes? Do you think if Ty Cobb were to go to a game now at Yankee Stadium, he would be absolutely furious with this, I'm trying to use an appropriate word, but this babyification, right? Games that are taking 90 minutes are now taking three or four hours because they have to adjust their gloves. They didn't even wear gloves then and they have to, you know, wait to the crowd and wait for a song to play. I mean, do you think that that's a paradox and he would just be furious by that? Well, obviously there have been a couple of Ty Cobb biographies written in the last year that sort of give a different view of him. And or just anybody, right? Yeah, I, I, I think, but you know, the funny thing is, this is, there's a wonderful quote that I had from a sports writer to the effect that, you know, history runs on a circular track, but we only go by it once, so we don't realize that. In, in the 1920s, the guys from the 1890s came out and said, we played for the love of the game. These guys are playing for these ridiculous salaries. <laughs> then in the 1950s, the players from the 20s came and said, we played for the love of the game. These guys in the 50s are playing. It goes around. Now, this may find hard to believe, but in 25 years, maybe he'll come to Bergino. <laughs> Alex Rodriguez will write a book. And he'll talk about the fact that he played for the love of the game because he played for only 25 million a year. <laughs> so it, it's always been a business, and uh, that doesn't directly answer your question. But uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of the guys would feel that, feel that way. Uh, they feel they were in the pure, more rough and tumble game. And but it's always been a business. Sure. Yeah, Dazzy Bench was unusual, like Rube Waddell, he would strike out more than 300 guys, but most leaders in the 1920s in strikeouts struck out less than 150. Shocker led the league in 22 with 149, I think. So 
And, and we do have some hard data on World Series games. I know when Kovaleski won three games in the 1920 uh, World Series, his pitch count was amazing, like 79, 84, and none of them were above 100. I mean, they just you know, put the ball in play. Now, in the 1920s, the ball was starting to go further for a, a combination of reasons. People may not realize this, but you know, they used to use the same ball in the whole game. People don't realize that they banned, they, they ordered new white fresh baseballs starting at the beginning of the 1920 season. And the owners were complaining because too much money. And so they got the umpires to back off on it a little bit. And then Ray Chapman was killed in August. And then they reinstituted the, the rule because it was at uh, the polo grounds on a cloudy afternoon and maybe Chapman didn't, you know, didn't see the ball. But uh, yeah, Vance was just really an outlier or just an anomaly. And like Waddell, 300 strikeouts is, is just incredible. You know, it's pretty interesting. We talk about it in, uh, in 1921. And of course, uh, you know, Huggins w was underappreciated until the late 1920s. But the first two games of the 21 World Series, Huggins knew that these were great pitchers that he was facing. I think it was Art Neff and, um, and the other one was uh, uh, Douglas, the spitball pitcher. And, and the Yankees played the hit and run. And they won these two games three to nothing. So. I think the great, the great managers are the ones that tailor their style of play to the situation, uh, to the pitcher. When Huggins came to the Yankees, everybody thought he was going to play small ball because he was so tiny and he led the league in walks four times. But if you, if you got a, these powerful hitters, uh, you, you change it. And the interesting thing by an, as an aside is, and I didn't know this and Lyle didn't know this, John McGraw hated bunting. He thought to give up an out is ridiculous. Hit and run, yes, but he instinctively knew. And it's frustrating. I think it's, hasn't it been proven now? I mean, we still, I see it in Seattle all the time. Uh, you know, guys on first base say bunt, guys on second base uh, sometimes, you know, there may be one out. Uh, a lot of teams are still bunting. And maybe that's situational because the hitter that's coming up is not, you know, that, that effective. Well, I asked Jack Zarenzik that a couple of years ago, the former GM of the Mariners, and what he said is you have to realize these guys are being paid so much money, and if they break a bone on their finger trying to bunt and they're out for two months, so to what extent that figures in there, I don't know. And maybe another manager would say, if you know how to bunt, you're not going to break a bone on your finger. But maybe the ball's coming in so fast and so much movement that it's too risky. Actually, I... You've mentioned managers a couple times, and uh, most people certainly in this room know about Miller Huggins and John McGraw. But if you could just speak a little bit about the, ma I think even the people in this room may not know who these St. Louis Browns managers were. If you could just talk a little bit about the managers through Shocker's time, the St. Louis managers. Yes, yeah, uh, Shocker went through a few managers, but Lee Fole, F-O-H-L, was uh, uh, the one that uh, had him like 21 through 20, 23. The owner of the Browns was a very difficult guy to get along with. And Bob Quinn, who I mentioned earlier, finally resigned as general manager, business manager, they called it. And now Lou Fole had, Lee Fole had no buffer between him. Uh, but uh, Lee Fole was a very a quiet guy. Uh, the criticism is that he would overwork his pitcher. 
But on the other hand, soccer just demanded the ball all the time. And, uh, you know, before that time, uh, the Browns, soccer's first Brown manager was Fielder Jones, who managed the uh, hitless wonders, the White Sox, and came back out of retirement. And uh, he, he, it turned out he actually had, had a bad heart, and he died uh, pretty young, I think in his 60s. And after one particularly difficult loss, he just left the clubhouse and never said goodbye and went to Portland, Oregon, where he had a family lumber business, and he never came back. He couldn't handle the pressure of it. So managers dealing with the stress of the game has probably uh, <laughs> different people han handle it differently. But uh, yeah, and Jones was considered you know, a genius with the 1906 White Sox, not as much with the, uh, with the Browns. So. And Lee Fole then went to the Boston Red Sox because when Harry Frizee finally sold the Red Sox, they were bought by a group that Bob Quinn was involved in. And in 1924, two months into the season, this terrible Red Sox team was in first place. It wasn't two weeks, it was two months. But very quickly things sort of fell back into their normal and after three last place finishes, uh, Lee was gone. And a lot of these guys in the depression, Lee was pumping gas at a gas station in the 1930s. How he made a living. You mentioned this Browns owner. Was it Phil DeCasque Ball who was the owner at the time? Right. Or was it, had he sold it? Because I know. No, it was Ball. Ball, I, actually, there's a new uh, Sabre publication coming out called Sportsman's Park. And I've got three articles in there, including a biography of Phil Ball. And what Sabre ends up doing is when they, they bring these books out, Usually 12 months later, sometimes 24 months later, they all get put on the BioProject website. Ball was a fascinating guy. I, I have a quote in this book uh, where he, he reminded uh, one sports writer of somebody running to his own fire. I mean, he put fuel on it, you know, he would turn red and, uh, and he just was so hot-tempered. And uh, he was an interesting guy because he was also an aviation guy. And he would fly to business meetings in Chicago and Detroit and fly home to St. Louis that night. And this is, you know, before uh, Lindbergh. Uh, but he was, and he, he interfered like uh, other managers we can perhaps think of who have interfered in micromanaging. And in 22, you know, Quinn just kept, kept Ball back enough. But Ball owned the team until, uh, until he died in the early 30s. He, he owned the Federal League team in St. Louis. And then when the Federal League went away, part of the settlement is that the Cubs owner of the Federal League, uh, the Chicago owner of the Federal League team, and Ball who owned the St. Louis Federal League team bought into Major League Baseball. So he bought the Browns. And they really had two rosters, and that's why Fielder Jones's team was sort of disappointing, because they had the Browns, and then they had the Terriers, which were the Federal League team, so. Well, then Bo, and I think Lee wrote about this in his book, he forced out Brandon Trickey. Yeah, I mean, the famous statement was, I mean, when he met him, he said to Brandon Trickey, you're the goddamn prohibitionist. And, you know, Ball liked his liquor, and, uh, and he also was sort of a real gruff kind of guy, and Ricky was more the intellectual. So, yeah, Lee is spot on. I mean, Ball was a, he, when you really get into him, he's probably a more sensitive guy, and maybe a lot of people that are that gruff really are inside doing that to cover something up. But he, he loved the game. There was one game where it was raining, and Quinn decided to call off the game and uh, Ball sitting there at the ballpark and he can't understand the game starting. And Quinn came to him and said, well, I thought I'm doing you a favor. You know, you would have only had 20 people at the game today. We'd make money. We'd lose money. And Ball said, if you ever do that again, he said, I work really hard and I get out here to the ballpark. I want to see my team play. If you ever cancel a game like that again, you're, you're going to be fired. <laughs> so colorful guys. That's for sure. Colorful guys. 
And ultimately, what turns me on is, is less the numbers and more the stories of, the, of these players. And, and uh, Shocker you know, knew he was dying, continued uh, to pitch. And in 1928, he had a celebrated holdout. And nobody could figure out why he's holding out. And the whole thing was just a cover-up because he was down to 115 pounds. And in early stages of his heart disease, you retain water and you weigh more. The very latter stages, and I've visited with cardiologists about this, the very latter stages, I think it's pronounced kachekia, it's a, it's a, then you're, you're just, your body's wasting away. And uh, he finally got up enough weight to show up in 28. He pitched one game in relief. He almost died in Comiskey Park, uh, a pitching warm-up, and they kept it out of the newspapers. He didn't want his wife to be uh, upset. But, uh, and then he died. And then he went to Denver, and he still didn't want to give it up. So he pitched as a ringer for the Denver Post Tournament, which is a big semi Pro tournament, and he collapsed in the seventh inning on the mound, and went to St. Luke's Hospital there, and, and never got out. I think the official cause of death was pneumonia, which oftentimes is what you know gets gets a person. So, and he was what thirty seven when he thirty seven, yeah. Yeah. And uh, but you know a lot of those spitball pitchers like Faber and Grimes. I mean they they pitched uh, you know quite late. Uh, Shocker came back to the Yankees. And ironically, imagine this in 1925, the Browns were better than the Yankees. That was the year Babe Ruth got almost, you know, got sick. And Shocker uh, was the only guy on the 25 Yankees that didn't start or that didn't have a losing record. But it's the only season he didn't have a winning record. And really, he was the one that in 26 got them, uh, you know, rolling towards the pennants. Any last question before we wrap up our time? Well, I'm, I'm, Lyle Spatz and I are starting to work on now on, uh, we are two aging authors that feel we still have game. So we are working on two aging ball players that, um, that were told repeatedly that they were done and kept on coming back. And one of them is Jack Quinn, who I've done a lot of work with, John Pikus Quinn, pitched until he was 50. And uh, Jamie Moyer, who's from Seattle, I'm sure I'll visit with Jamie during the process, broke his record as he, by a few days, the oldest pitcher. The other one was Howard Emke. And Howard Emke was washed up with the athletics in the late 1920s. And when they went to the World Series to Chicago to face Hack Wilson and uh, Hornsby and Charlie Grimm, everybody's wondering, who's Connie Mack going to start, Lefty Grove or George Earnshaw? And he starts Emke. And Emke could hardly throw the ball. I mean, his arm trouble, he was a very clever pitcher. and. He mixed it up, and it was the last game he ever won in the, in the major leagues. And uh, he, he so confused them and had them off balance, he set a strikeout record that lasted until Carl Erskine broke it in either 52 or 53. So that book's uh, just starting, so it's not going to be out in a year or two. But uh, the, these two guys just uh, kept, on, kept on going when everybody said they, they couldn't do it anymore. And uh, really interesting story. So. When you start a book like that with Lyle, how long does that take? Boy, you know, now, uh, uh, you know, I'm doing a lot of the microfilm work. Since December, I've made two about 10-day trips to Boston, two to Philadelphia, and one to Detroit. Uh, I, I love New York City, but other than Qu Quinn had a couple stays with the Yankees, these guys were teammates on the Red Sox and on the A's. And so, uh, you know, it, it's over a year of probably intense of research not to speak of the drawing on your past work. 
And the interesting thing is these guys were on the worst team in baseball, the Red Sox of the early 20s. And one of them, M.K. Ardo Quinn was released. And here's Connie Mack comes along and says, you know, I think these guys can still do something. I mean, at the age of 40s, mid 40s, uh, Quinn won 18 games for the 28 uh, A's. And like I said, M.K. was that, that World Series hero. So it's, it's a long time. I, I, do, I like to do a lot of microfilm work. Um, and uh, it's, some papers are being digitized, but a lot of them aren't. And each newspaper reporter and commentator have his own sources, his own ins, his own angles. It enables you to flesh out the character. Before we wrap up, just a, uh, a general question, since you know so much about the teens and 20s, and you alluded to it for a bit, whether it's Shaka or someone else, is there some player that should obviously be in the Hall of Fame who is not, in, in your opinion, from that, from that time only? I don't want to get into a whole thing, but just from that time. Yeah, I actually don't spend a lot of time agonizing over that. I, I, I really don't. I think the 20s, at least for hitters, is perhaps overrepresented. Uh, and, uh, but no one really does jump out to me. Again, Shocker is definitely, you know, ranks higher than some guys and lower than others. But the fact that somebody is better, somebody not in the hall is better than somebody's in the hall is not really a reason why he should be in the hall because maybe if somebody else, you know, is more borderline. But there's different philosophies. How, how special and exclusive should your hall of fame be? You don't, so, have, you don't have a vote, do you? No, no. And a lot of the people now that are, <coughs> you know, analysts and into the more the sabermetric angle, I think a lot of them don't have votes either. It's more, you know, the sports yeah. But we're seeing things change. You know, I'm from Seattle. Felix Rodriguez was 13 and 12, and he won the Cy Young Award. That wouldn't have happened uh, 10 years ago, probably. All right. Well, we're going to uh, wrap up on that note. And it's, uh, again, the name of the book, Urban Shocker, Silent Hero of Baseball's Golden Age, published by University of Nebraska Press, written by Steve Steinberg. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Podcast shaking hands. <laughs>